This recording is intended to be used as an educational resource for healthcare providers. It is in no way a substitute for the independent decision making and judgment of a qualified healthcare professional. It should not be used to make a diagnosis or to overrule the advice of a qualified healthcare provider, nor should it be used to provide advice for emergency medical treatment. Parenteral Nutrition, Indications and Practical Applications by Caitlin Ariano. Hi, my name is Caitlin Ariano, and I'm a registered dietitian here at Children's Hospital Boston. Today, we'll be talking about a couple different nutrition topics specific to the ICU and ICU care. Just to remind you that these are guidelines that we've established here at Children's Hospital Boston, and you may need to alter these guidelines depending on your institution and your resources that are available to you. Nutrition Assessment in Estimating Nutrition Needs the first topic I'll be talking about today is estimating nutritional needs. Estimating nutritional needs in the critically ill child remains a challenge. Anthropometric data such as weight, height, or length are not always easily obtainable in the ICU, and they are not always accurate due to other compounding factors in the ICU. Additional anthropometric data, if able to be obtained by a skilled clinician, include tricep skin fold measurements or mid-arm circumference measurements, which can better assess a patient's baseline body composition, such as their total body fat or their degree of malnutrition. Along with anthropometric data, the physical exam of a patient plays a crucial role in better assessing a patient's clinical baseline nutritional status. Noting whether a patient is edematous, has any temporal or muscle wasting, or altered skin integrity may further influence your final goal energy and protein needs. Weight changes over time, in addition to trends in anthropometric data, remain the gold standard in determining if your energy goals are accurate. This is why it is important to obtain these anthropometric measurements on a regular basis. Just as a patient's clinical status changes in the ICU, so do their energy demands. Nutritional Needs of Critically Ill Children versus Healthy Children The nutritional needs of critically ill children significantly differ compared to healthy children. More research here at Children's has shown that the energy demands of a critically ill child are significantly reduced. Factors that are contributing to this include patients being on bed rest, they're commonly on sedation medications and chemical paralysis, along with being on mechanical ventilatory support, which significantly reduces their energy demands. Also, if a patient is receiving parenteral nutrition support, it is thought that the thermic effect of food is reduced by about 10% because the body is not using any energy to digest and absorb the macronutrients. If energy needs are incorrectly assessed, a patient becomes at risk for being underfed or overfed, which can further complicate a patient's clinical condition such as length of stay in the ICU, days on mechanical vent support, or they also may become at increased risk for infections. Based on these metabolic factors playing a role in a patient's energy demands, here at Children's, we estimate a resting energy expenditure, or REE, using the equations WHO or Schofield. We then use a stress factor that we multiply to result in a number that we call total energy expenditure. 
The stress factor that we commonly use here ranges from 1 to 1.3, but can be as high as 2 if a patient is a status post of trauma or thermal injury, as well as if a patient needs to undergo nutrition rehab, such as ketchup growth. Point of clarification. Depending on the individual patient, a stress factor may not always need to be applied when estimating energy needs. Patients may also have changing energy needs during different stages of their illness. The RDA and DRI equations overestimate energy needs in a critically ill child, therefore are rarely used here at the hospital in the ICU setting. Indirect calorimetry remains the gold standard when attempting to assess basal energy needs and should be considered for a patient that is undergoing metabolic derangements in the ICU. Indications for parenteral nutrition. Next, I will be talking about parenteral nutrition support, or here at Children's, the abbreviated version called PN. It is important to first identify the appropriate circumstances when PN should be used as the primary form of nutrition support. Generally, this includes patients that are on bowel rest, have altered bowel function related to medical or surgical conditions, and anticipate being unable to be enterally fed for greater than five or more days. For infants or severely malnourished patients, our threshold to starting PN is closer to three days. Once PN is deemed appropriate, we then identify the IV access a patient has. This will determine the PN solution we are able to infuse. Preferably here at Children's, the tip of the central venous line should be in a large vessel such as the right atrium or the superior vena cava where the venous flow is at its maximum and can handle a concentrated solution. If a patient only has peripheral IV access, the challenge becomes meeting their energy needs because the concentration is limited to not exceed 900 milliosms per liter, which usually correlates to a PN solution of a dextrose of 10% and a 2% amino acid solution with standard additives. The next step in initiating PN is reviewing the patient's fluid status and electrolyte trends. Here at Children's Hospital Boston, we estimate fluid requirements using the holiday Seeger method. As a patient is initiating on PN and being maintained on PN, monitoring hydration status closely is very important, as fluid needs may change depending on a patient's clinical condition. A patient may require increased fluids if they have insensible losses such as being persistently febrile or if they have increased losses via stool or nasogastric tubes. Also, a patient may require a concentrated fluid for their PN if they are becoming fluid overloaded. Here at Children's, our PN solution is a two-in-one where our lipids are infused separately. We also dose our contents of our PN per liter. Our three macronutrients included in our PN solution consist of carbohydrate, being dextrose, with a 3.4 calorie per gram, proteins, which is a crystalline amino acid, which is 4 calories per gram, and fat, which is a soybean safflower emulsion, which is a 20% solution, 2 calories per milliliter. In terms of dextrose, we look at it as being our primary source of calories in our PN and we use a glucose infusion rate, or GIR, as our measurement to help initiate and advance the PN solution. It is recommended here of starting a glucose infusion rate of around five milligrams per kilogram body weight per minute.
We then will advance the GIR by a range of 2 to 5 milligrams per kilogram per minute, which equals a 5 to 10% dextrose increase. The upper limit for the GIR varies depending on age. For infants, the upper limit for the glucose infusion rate is anywhere from 10 to 14 milligrams per kilogram per minute. For children ages 1 to 10, we do not like to exceed a GIR of greater than 10. And for adolescents, we do not like to exceed a GIR of greater than 6. When advancing the GIR and PN, we closely monitor blood sugar levels as well as urine lights making sure that there is no glucose noted in the urine. In terms of protein, we do not like to use it as a primary fuel source as we do with carbohydrates, but instead dose it appropriately to prevent further loss of lean body mass. Our protein or our crystalline amino acids contains a combination of essential, semi-essential, and non-essential amino acids with the combinations varying depending on the age of the patient. For infants, we use the solution trophamine, and for children greater than the age of one, we use the solution aminosin. In terms of initiating the protein in the PN, for infants, we initiate protein at two grams per kilogram body weight, and for children and adolescents, we initiate protein at one gram per kilogram body weight. With advancement, we increase protein by one gram per kilogram body weight every day to our desirable upper, upper ranges. For infants, the upper range of protein is three to four grams per kilogram body weight per day. For children, our range of protein is 1.5 to 2.5 grams per kilogram per day. And for adolescents, our range is one to 1.5 grams per kilogram per day. It is also important to take note, though, the instances where children require more or less protein outside of these ranges, such as a patient that is status post-trauma or with open wounds requiring increased protein, or if a patient is showing signs of developing renal failure requiring less protein. We, however, do not like to go lower than the RDA for protein to, again, prevent further lean body mass loss. With our fat source being a 20% solution called intralipid, it contains a combination, primarily more of omega-6 fatty acids to prevent essential fatty acid deficiency. We initiate the lipids for all ages here at Children's at one gram per kilogram per day, and will advance by one gram per kilogram to again our desirable upper ranges based on the patient's age. For infants, our upper limit for lipid dosing is no higher than three grams per kilogram per day. For children ages one to 10, it's a range of 1.5 to 2.5 grams per kilogram per day. And for adolescents, we do not like to exceed a dose of 1.5 grams per kilogram per day. We recommend prior to initiating lipids, obtaining a fasting triglyceride level to ensure optimal tolerance. And depending on the dosing of the lipid and the length of time they are on PN, we also like to monitor essential fatty acid panels. The next component of our PN solution consists of our electrolytes and additives. The standard electrolytes we include in our PN solution here at Children's include sodium, potassium, phosphorus, chloride, magnesium, and calcium. 
Our sodium standard ranges from 2 to 4 milliequivalents per kilogram, and our potassium ion chloride ranges from 2 to 3 milliequivalents per kilogram body weight. We strongly recommend correcting any electrolyte derangements prior to the initiation of PN, as it is very difficult to manage electrolyte shifts once the PN is infusing. And any acute changes in PN rate or volume can adversely affect macronutrient metabolism, such as hypoglycemia or hyperglycemia. Patients, again, may require additional or less additives and electrolytes based on their clinical condition. If they are going into renal failure, they may require less potassium, phosphorus. If they have increased losses via a nasogastric tube or stool, they may require increased amounts of sodium or potassium. PN advancement is strongly dependent on laboratory data, which is why we closely follow daily chemistries while they are advancing on PN. And once they are at goal calories via PN, we follow weekly PN profile labs to ensure continued tolerance. On average, our patients reach goal energy needs via PN by day three or four. It may take longer, closer to five to seven days, if a patient is at increased risk for refeeding syndrome. But again, laboratory data closely determines our advancement plan with PN. If a patient is on PN greater than one month and continues to re receive minimal or no enteral nutrition, we also monitor long-term nutrition labs to determine if additional micronutrients such as selenium or carnitine should be added to our PN solutions, or if increased amounts of our micronutrients such as zinc or copper should also be included. That concludes my lecture on estimating energy needs in the critically ill child and parental nutrition support. Thank you for your time. This recording is a production of Open Pediatrics, a free and open access resource for pediatric clinicians worldwide. For more pediatric care materials or to join our global community, please visit our website at openpediatrics.org.